the Gospel of John. So if you would please open your Bibles to John chapter 21, John chapter 21, and uh, we'll read this uh, chapter in its entirety, John chapter 21. So let's give attention to the reading of God's word, John chapter 21, beginning in verse 1. Hear now the word of God. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called a twin, Nathanael of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but in that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far off from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? Uh, They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you, love these? do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him, the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Peter turned, <coughs> excuse me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that the disciple was not to die, yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. 
Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. May God add his blessing to this reading from his holy and inspired word. Let's bow together in a a brief word of prayer. Let us pray. Father God, we pray that you would give us ears to hear. Unstop them with our willfulness. Unstop them with our sin. Unstop them, O Lord, of all of the things that obstruct our ability to hear you clearly. We pray, O Lord, that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would... Uh, teach us uh, the word of Christ, that you would conform us to his image, that you would fill us with hope, O Lord, the hope of the forgiveness of our sins and of restoration, that which comes only through Christ and his gospel by the power of your spirit. We pray and ask all of these things in Christ's name. Amen. One of the things that uh, I think can be most difficult is whenever somebody sins against us, especially if it's a very grievous sin, Uh, we can find it very difficult to forgive them. Whether it's, uh, say, for example, spousal infidelity or perhaps whether somebody has done something at the worst time in your life when you're perhaps weak or sick or taken advantage of you, we know that the Lord calls us to forgive people, especially those who come to us and ask for our forgiveness. And oftentimes, I think it's a question that we know theologically, we know intellectually, okay, I have a moral and ethical responsibility to forgive the person that is standing before me that is asking uh, forgiveness for his or her sins against me. And so sometimes we can take that intellectual knowledge, we can take that theological conviction, and we can turn it into simply uh, the mere saying of the words, We can say, okay, I forgive you. And then so long as we can keep our distance from the person, perhaps so long as we can avoid coming into contact with them, then we don't necessarily have to follow through with the rest of those words, that down payment, if you will, of the forgiveness of sins. And by down payment, I mean we can say, I forgive you, but often it's the case where we simply say the words and it's the follow-up necessary act of restoration that is missing. In other words, we don't want to be around that person. We don't want to let that person back into our lives. Perhaps we'll distance ourselves from them. We don't want to restore them to the former position of intimacy and friendship that they once had with us before they sinned against us. Now, in this particular case here, I think this is precisely what what uh, what is going on between Peter and Jesus and why John showcases this is he's showing us that it's not merely the words, I forgive you, that are important uh, in the Christian life, but it's both the words of forgiveness as well as the necessary actions of restoration that is so important when we're talking about offering the forgiveness to others. We know, for example, that Jesus himself personally both forgave and restored his fellow disciples. Think, for example, as to what went through the mind of Christ as he was there praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. He approached the disciples and he asked them, please, please pray with me. I am sorrowful unto death. He was about to be handed over to the religious leaders. He was about to be put on trial. He was going on the path of the suffering and the path of the cross. And so he goes and he prays and the disciples fall asleep. 
He goes back and he says, cannot you even watch with me for but one hour? And he went away again, and yet they fell asleep again. All, for all intents and purposes, they had at least spiritually abandoned Christ at this point because they could not even keep watch over him and with him in prayer. And then, of course, when the religious leaders finally showed up to arrest him, what the disciples were initially hinting at by their unwillingness and their inability to stay awake and to pray with Jesus and abandoning him in that form, they followed through by abandoning him physically and that they essentially took off and they fled for the hills. Of course, we know that Peter followed at some distance. And we know, sadly, that Peter went and denied Christ not once, not twice, but thrice, three times, three times, to the point where Peter began cursing so as to distance himself from Christ. And yet, what is amazing in all of this is that when Jesus arose from the dead and he first encountered the women at the tomb, he said some amazing words that begin to show us that Jesus was not only willing to forgive, but he was also willing to restore the disciples to perhaps what we can say is an even greater place of intimacy than what they had before they betrayed him, before they abandoned him. And that Jesus told Mary, tell my brothers that I have arisen. In other words, he was saying, they are my brothers. They are my friends. I am willing to forgive. I am extending my mercy and my grace, and I am restoring them to an even higher position than what they had prior to my resurrection. In other words, it's one thing to stand on equal footing and to say, okay, we have a friendship. It's another thing to go, if you will, into a deficit where you sin against somebody and then to offer that forgiveness and to have your position restored from out of the depths of sin unto, we can say, even a higher position of intimacy and, and, and friendship. You know, the way we can illustrate this is the idea that when you break a bone, what happens is that that bone, you know, get, you know gets separated. And then when it's rejoined, medical doctors say that the bone actually becomes stronger because of the break, and that when it heals, it's actually stronger at that previous fracture point. I think that's the nature of Jesus saying to Mary, tell my brothers, tell my brothers that I have risen from the dead. These were not words of rebuke to those who abandoned Jesus in his darkest hour, but they were the sweet words of forgiveness, the gospel that only comes through Christ by faith. And so here what we want to do is we want to see not only how Jesus in general puts together forgiveness and restoration, but more specifically, we want to see how he gives forgiveness and restoration to Peter, the one that we can say that betrayed him the most fiercely, the one who really denied him those three times, even unto cursing. And so what we want to do first is we want to see how Jesus, first of all, appears to the disciples. Secondly, we want to give thought to what Jesus does in his, dare if I say, his interrogation of Peter, where he asks him three times, Peter, do you love me? So that we understand the nature of Jesus's interrogation, his questions to Peter. And then third and finally, we want to give thought to what uh, the, John has to offer us and in, in through the teaching of Christ about the necessity and the importance of both forgiveness and uh, restoration. So first, 
how does Jesus appear to the disciples? I think there's a sense in which we can say that the disciples were probably hungry. You know, they had been through the ringer. Uh, If you've ever been through a traumatic experience, uh, sometimes you don't give great attention to eating. You forget about it. And then before you know it, your stomach starts saying, hey, I'm hungry. Uh, Please uh, take care of this food deficit. And so the disciples, in their need for food, they go back to what they knew. They went back to fishing. But at the same time, we can say in John chapter 21, as this uh, chapter starts off, that there's a somber mood, a somber cloud hanging over uh, the narrative. And perhaps we might say that it's indicative of Peter's guilt. I can only imagine that as the disciples received word that Jesus had been raised from the dead, that they were elated, that they were filled with joy, and that Peter, even so, as you know, he would experience these things, but then in the back of his mind, as he sees the others rejoicing, he would be nagged and he would be bothered by the fact that of the memories of his words ringing out of how he denied uh, Christ three times. And so it's under this uh, somber cloud that they go out in the middle of the night. They go out in the middle of the night. And at daybreak, Jesus appeared on the shore and called them to inquire whether or not they had caught anything. And something tells me that if you read between the lines, perhaps there's a bit of annoyance on the part of the disciples. They're out there. They've been out there all night. And if you've ever been sleep deprived and you're hungry too, you get hangry, right? And as Jesus calls out, he's like, have you caught anything? And they're like, no, we haven't. Why do you think we'd still be out here if we had actually caught something? And yet what Jesus is doing is he's beginning to reveal himself to let the disciples know that it is he, Jesus. And so Jesus told them to cast the net on the other side of the boat. And at first glance, once again, you can't only imagine that the disciples were probably thinking, gee, I wish we had thought of that. You know, don't you think we've thought that, you know, both sides of the boat? But nevertheless, this event was uh, reminiscent of Peter's own call in Luke chapter 5. And I think that this would have likely been a reminder of Christ's call to them to be fishers of men. In other words, Jesus is slowly but surely reminding them of who he is. He's recalling events from earlier in his ministry when he called them to be his disciples. And so he's laying the groundwork to unveil his identity. And when the disciples hauled in the net, it was bursting practically at the seams, and this undoubtedly jogged their memories. When has this happened before? And they recognized that this is no ordinary man standing on the shore. And so Peter put on his cloak. He was stripped down in order to fish. And so out of a reverence for Jesus, he put on his cloak and then jumped into the water and swam to the shore. And Jesus there had prepared, of all things, breakfast for them, so that even in his glorified state, he's still serving He's still caring for his disciples, and this sets the stage, this meal that Jesus had prepared for Jesus' interrogation of Peter, which brings us to our second point, and that Jesus asks Peter a series of what we can say are, you know, painful questions, painful questions, which I suspect made Peter uh, uncomfortable, 
You know, I can remember that when I was in college, uh, I worked in retail security, and one of the things that uh, they, they taught me was they, they sent me to interview and interrogation school. And they taught us how to interrogate people, how to ask questions, how to get the truth out of somebody when they're intent on lying to you. Uh, interview and interrogation school has proved immensely useful in parenting. Uh, you know, you, you can start to see, oh, wait a minute, I, I, are you telling me the truth? Let's, let's ask a few questions here. But I can remember that what you would do is you would prime the pump, so to speak, by asking a series of innocuous questions so that when you finally got to the point where you would ask the damning question, did you, in fact, take from the company? Did you, in fact, steal? Um, you could eventually persuade them to tell you the truth. But whenever you asked that question, there was often a hesitation because they knew that you knew, and they knew that it would be uncomfortable to tell the truth because it would uncover their crime. It would uncover their wrongdoing. And I suspect that this is something of what goes on in this exchange between Jesus and Peter. And in chapter 21, verse 15, he says, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? That's got to be a sharp, painful question. Christ was asking him whether he loved him more than his companions, more than his fellow disciples. And I suspect that Peter probably responded slowly and patiently, if not painfully, when he said, yes, Lord, you, you know that I love you. And you've got to think that in the back of his mind, his denial is riding in the back. And so he says to, 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 to Peter, feed my lambs, take care of the church. And so what Jesus is beginning to do here is that Jesus is not just trying to stick it to Peter. He's not just trying to make a point. You denied me, so I'm going to make you confess me. And I'm going to point out that I know what you did. He's not just sticking it to Peter. He's restoring him. And there's a difference. And I think what he's implicitly saying is he's saying, Peter, I know what you did. Do you love me? And I think the question is not for Christ's sake as much as it is for Peter's sake. Peter needs to hear his own words. He needs to hear that, yes, he truly does indeed love Jesus. And so when he says, yes, you know, Lord, that I love you, he says, okay, I'm restoring you. You're not going to be a you know, half disciple. You're not going to be a half apostle. You're not going to be the guy that only stays on the periphery because at the end of the day, you can't be trusted because when, 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 the, when, when things get tough, you might actually deny me. You might reject the church. You might reject the teaching of the gospel. No, he's saying, feed my lambs. I'm restoring you to a position of importance. I am undoing your denial. Which means that, like a good surgeon, Jesus doesn't want to simply just cut out part of the diseased tissue. He has to go and cut deep to cut all of the diseased tissue out so that it doesn't regrow. 
And so he asks Peter a second time in verse 16, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And again, you've got to think that Peter's got to feel the knife going in. This is a surgery that I suspect that has no luxury of anesthesia. It's one for which there is no anesthesia. There's one that it's only the careful scalpel of Christ that goes in to remove the unbelief out of Peter's heart and to forgive him and to restore him, but it's one that is painful. And so he says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And so Jesus responds again, tend my sheep. I'm restoring you. Now, at this point, an attorney might object to Christ's questions because they might say, objection, your honor, The question has already been asked and answered. He asked him once. There's no need to ask him again. And Peter's answer is clear. It doesn't quite translate into English very well, but my grandfather used to have a saying he would say in Spanish. He would say, I don't have hair on my tongue that keeps me from speaking clearly. It's another way of saying, I didn't stutter. I said it clearly. There's no hair on my tongue. And so I think, you know, the, the, the defense attorney might say, yeah, Peter didn't stutter. He said he loved you. And yet Jesus asks a second time. But if that weren't enough, Jesus presses and asks the question a third time. He says in verse 17, he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And at this point, Peter's grief is palpable. Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Now, a lot has been made of the Greek in this passage. Namely, that in in one instance, Jesus says, do you love me? And he uses the word phileo which is where we get the word Philadelphia for brotherly love. But then in a follow-up question, he says, do you love me? Do you love me with agape? And that agape is supposedly a love that is only that comes through Christ in the gospel, and it's only a love directly from God. The significance here, however, is not between the two different terms. You know, he, uh, John uses, and Jesus uses a number of interchanging syllables. He says two different words for sheep and, and lambs. He says two different words for love. That's not the point. The point is not in the vocabulary that he uses, but rather it's what he says in verse 17. Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? In other words, the point here is not the specific vocabulary, but the number of times that Jesus asks the question. There's a couple of different things going on here. You know, in the Hebrew mindset and Hebrew grammar and Hebrew vocabulary, the way that you emphasize something is by not saying it once, not saying it twice, but saying it three times. God is not holy. He's not holy, holy. He's holy, holy, holy. That's the way that you indicate the superlative, the highest form of something. So this makes, in a sense, Peter's betrayal all the more worse. He doesn't deny Jesus once, not twice, but three times. But then this means that the flip side of the coin is equally true. 
Jesus is not trying to stick it to Peter. He's restoring him and he's saying, I know full well what you have done. Therefore, I'm going to ask you this question three times, but it's not to drive the knife in deeper to make it worse, but rather it's so that the grace of the gospel and the forgiveness and my love penetrate as deeply as your betrayal has inflicted a wound upon you. I am healing you. My grace is greater than your betrayal. I am asking you this question three times so that you know full well that I have completely, wholeheartedly, and utterly forgiven you for your betrayal. It's the grace of the gospel that causes Jesus to ask Peter three times, do you love me? And it's Jesus telling him three times, feed my sheep, tend my lambs, feed the church. And so what Jesus is saying here is without qualification, without hesitation, without reservation, Peter is a disciple, he's a brother, he's an apostle, he's a shepherd of Christ's church. Because Jesus has not only forgiven him, but he's restored him to his former place. But at the same time, I think that Jesus was also preparing Peter for his death, strengthening him and preparing his resolve. In chapter 21 here, verse 18, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. And so in verse 19, John tells us that Jesus was talking about Peter's death. According to church history, Peter would be crucified. He would be dressed for the cross. But what Jesus is telling him is he's saying, I will go before you. I will undergird you. You will not betray me again. I promise you, you will be faithful, not because of your faithfulness, but because of my faithfulness. Because of my faithfulness. You know, so often it's the case that when it comes to the things to which God has called us, especially on the heels of significant and grievous failures, wickedness and sin, that we can doubt ourselves, we can doubt our resolve, we can wonder about our faith, we can, we can have doubts about the love of God. And Jesus is encouraging Peter, he's strengthening him, saying, you will not fail me. I know you won't because I won't let you. So this brings us to our third and final point, which is the nature of gospel restoration. And that this passage, I think, captures uh, the depths of God's love in Christ for wicked sinners like us. Who of us, who among us would meet Peter's threefold denial with a threefold restoration? A restoration greater than the denial. But such is the nature of God's grace. What does Paul write in Romans 3.23 and following? For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Such is the nature of the forgiveness and restoration that we receive from God through Christ. I think many in the church are willing to forgive. We're willing to say the words. But how many of us are willing to restore? 
We'll utter the words of forgiveness, but our subsequent actions often reveal the hollowness of our words. Our mouths say one thing and our lives say another. How often, on the other hand, do we receive the forgiveness and then move on? In other words, sin creates an irreparable breach that all but nullifies the act of forgiveness, whether as giver or receiver. In other words, we say, okay, I forgive you, I've dealt with that, now I'm never going to talk to that person again in the rest of my life. I'll keep my distance. But what we have to recognize, beloved in Christ, is we need to keep forgiveness and restoration linked together. We cannot allow sin to damage permanently the relationships that we have with one another, whether in our families, whether in our friends, or whether it's in the church. Moreover, we can't allow those whom we forgive to stand on the periphery of forgiveness. In other words, I'll say the words, but you're almost as good as dead to me. I'm just not going to talk to you anymore. I'm not going to fellowship with you anymore. If we recognize the depths uh, and the degrees to which God has forgiven us in Christ, then what does that say when we are unwilling to restore people in our lives? In other words, go beyond simply just saying the words. What are the words of Jesus in the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6, verse 12? Forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. In other words, we have received both forgiveness and restoration, which means that we are supposed to be channels of the grace of God to everyone around us so that when others wrong us, we're willing to give forgiveness and restoration. Corrie ten Boom is famous because she had been arrested during World War II Uh, when she was in uh, Holland uh, living under Nazi occupation and uh, she had been hiding Jews and then she uh, and her family were uh, discovered and arrested and she and her sister uh, were imprisoned in a German camp. And uh, if you've read her story, The Hiding Place, you know that uh, she uh, and her sister, uh, you know, after being imprisoned, that her sister died in the prison camp. And so after the war, it was several years after the war in 1947, she, she would tour around and she would speak at various churches and she ended up getting an invitation to speak at a church in Germany. And this is where she told people about the gospel of Christ. And so she believed that the people of Germany, just as much as anybody else, if not more, especially in the wake of the, the devastation and the destruction of the war, needed to hear about the forgiveness of their sins. She said that they were a hollow people living, out, living in, a, in a desolate, bombed-out land. It's like if you've ever seen pictures of what post-war Germany looked like in the ensuing years right after the close of the war, it, it, it just, it was, cities were just absolutely destroyed and devastated. Just lived in, people lived among the rubble. And so what she said in one of her talks is she says, when we confess our sins, God casts them into the deepest ocean. They are gone forever. And so she was grateful and privileged to be able to share the message of the gospel with so many people, even people in Germany, the land that was the source of her oppression, the land of, uh, uh, that was the source of her imprisonment and even the death of her sister. And so on one particular occasion, as she finished, she noticed that a man was making his way forward, and he was wearing a brown overcoat and, and, and a hat. 
But she immediately recognized him, that even though his clothing was different, she could tell the face and she could practically, she said, see the German SS uh, uniform that he once wore. He was one of the guards in the camp where she and her sister had been imprisoned. She says, one moment I saw the overcoat and the brown hat, the next a blue uniform and a visored cap with its skull and crossbones. It came back with a rush, the huge room with its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor, the shame of walking naked past this man. I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me, ribs sharp beneath the parchment skin. You know, her sister was essentially so, so, so you know, enfeebled because they were not being fed uh, and they had uh, poor, such poor health that, you know, I've heard it described as the skin just being stretched out over the skeleton as if it were just paper. And so this former SS guard came up and told her how much he enjoyed the talk that she had given and what a wonderful message of hope it was to know that all of our sins had been forgiven in Christ and cast into the deepest of seas. Except the prison guard did not recognize Corey. And so then the prison guard began to tell of what he did during the war. And he says, but since that time, I have become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things that I did there, but I would like to hear it from your lips as well. Fraulein, will you forgive me? I can't imagine. Here's one of your former captors, prison guard, responsible in part for the death of your sister for unspeakable cruelties. And yet, now he stands before you asking for forgiveness. Asking for forgiveness. And she struggled and she, she, she said her body went limp that she did not want to say that I forgive you. For understandable reasons. For understandable reasons. And so she said she prayed, Jesus, help me. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. In other words, she was trying to say, it can't just be about the words. I have to be willing to restore this man. But she also recognized that she, in, in and of herself, was incapable of generating that the, 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 the feelings, if you will, and the willingness to forgive somebody like this. And as she extended her hand, she said she was overcome with a wave of love. And she said, I forgive you, brother, with all my heart. That does not come from the human heart. That comes solely by the grace of the gospel of Christ through the power and the working of the Holy Spirit in the hearts and lives of sinners. It comes with the realization that we ourselves have received great mercy in Christ and undeservedly so. And it is only the grace of God in Christ that convinces our sinful and wicked hearts that we need to extend that same grace and forgiveness to others even when we know we are incapable of it. She says, for a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former God and the former, or the former guard and the former prisoner, I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. She knew 
that forgiveness and restoration went hand in hand. And it's only something that comes by the grace of God in Christ. This is why John elsewhere writes in 1 John chapter 4, verse 9, In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son in the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loves us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. The love of which John writes is not that love, I think, that we share with one another when we love the people that are around us. Don't, don't mistake me. I'm not saying that that love isn't genuine, isn't important, and isn't vital in the life of the church. It is. But it's often the case, more often than not, I think, is that the love of which John writes is when we're dealing with that person that's in front of us that we don't like. It's when we're dealing with the person that stands in front of us like that former SS guard and says, Fraulein, will you forgive me? That's the depths of the love of which John writes. And those are the depths of the love and the grace of God in Christ that only comes through faith in him that we all have to pray for. We cannot just go through life assuming that that we will never have anybody, uh, you know, never stand in front of us for which we will have to pray and dig deep and say, oh, Lord, give me the love to love this person because I have none for them. We can't assume that. If we live in a sin-fallen world, we recognize that people are going to sit against us, which means that we have to pray and be ready and ask the Lord, please give me your grace that I can love this person as you have loved me. And so to this end, we have to cherish and relish the grace of forgiveness and the grace of restoration. As the prophet Isaiah writes, Come, let us now reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Beloved, rejoice that we can receive both the forgiveness and the grace of restoration through the gospel. And that pray that Christ, through his spirit, would enable all of us to forgive and to restore others in our lives. And it's as we manifest this love, the love of the gospel of Christ to everyone around us, that John says in John thirteen thirty five, By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Let's pray indeed that we would love one another as we have been loved by Christ. Let's pray. Father God, we give you thanks for this amazing gift of your forgiveness, that it's not simply some sort of verbal bandage by which you try to plaster over serious offenses, but rather these words reflect the depths and riches of your love in Christ, that when we were your enemies, you sent your son to die for us. Moreover, not only have you forgiven us our sins, and as Corey Ten Boom said, cast them into the deepest parts of the ocean, but, O oh Lord, you have restored us. Just as Peter betrayed you and denied you three times, you restored him with a threefold restoration. And so we pray, O oh Lord, 
that you would grant unto us the forgiveness of our sins, that you would give unto us an overwhelming sense of your love for us, that we would know how horrible we are as sinners, but yet conversely, how wonderfully rich and deep your love is for us so that we would be able to stand in your presence boldly with confidence and with hope. But at the same time, O Lord, may the depths of your love not only reach the deepest corners of our lives and of our hearts, but that they would flow out of our lives into the lives of others, that when others sin against us, you would enable us by your grace to restore them, to forgive them, that we would not hold anything back, that we would not cave into fear, to bitterness, and to anger, but rather your grace and your love would wash away those sinful feelings and that you would enable us to forgive those around us the same love that you have given us in Christ, so that when the world looks in, indeed, yes, they would see people that are sinful, but more so, O Lord, they would see a people that love one another and are willing to forgive one another because we have been forgiven of much. We pray and ask all of these things in Christ's precious and holy name. Amen.